as always, it's a joy to be in God's Word on Friday nights. As we work through the book of James, we'll be uh, looking at two, just two verses tonight. Uh, James 4, verses 11 and 12. James 4, 11 and 12. Let's read the text first. And James, by the Holy Spirit, writes this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Uh, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Father, as we look to your word, we again ask that you would help us to see your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by telling you a story about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, before he became president, uh, he served as the U.S. minister to France. Uh, and on January 7th, 1786, about 15 years before he would become president, Jefferson wrote to one John Sullivan in New Hampshire. Uh, and he wrote this, uh, asking him to send to Paris, quote, skin, the skeleton and the horns of the moose, the caribou and the elk, but especially those of the moose. Leave the hoof on, leave the bones of the legs and of the thighs, if possible, in the skin. And leave also the bones of the head in the skin with the horns on, so that by sewing up the neck and the belly of the skin, we should have the true form and size of the animal. This acquisition, Jefferson wrote, would be, quote, more precious than you can imagine, unquote. A curious request for an American diplomat whose normal business was commerce and peace treaties. But Thomas Jefferson had something to prove. You see, since the mid-18th century, European naturalists had proposed that animals uh, and vegetation and even humans degenerated more quickly and more severely on the American continent due to climate. In his book, Jefferson wrote uh, the, a book entitled Notes on the State of Virginia. He uh, wrote and confronted the theories of the leading French naturalist, George Louis Leclerc, the Count of Buffon, the French isn't great, uh, who contended that animals of America were smaller in size and in number because of climate. And in refuting Buffon, uh, Jefferson compiled charts comparing the sizes of animals of both continents and of the moose specifically, he noted, I have seen a skeleton seven feet high, and from good information, believe they are often considerably higher. The elk of Europe is not two-thirds of his height. You see, as a man of science, Jefferson it was insistent on refuting these so-called misconceptions. But as an American minister to a foreign country, the growth and prosperity of the new nation, the United States of America, depended upon a positive image that would encourage immigration and commerce to this new country. But without a doubt, more than anything else, any other reason for the budding statesman and politician who was Jefferson, there was an undeniable element of personal pride in this. All of this over whose moose was bigger. And over a year after Jefferson's request, 
a box arrived in Paris containing skin, bones, and horns. Sullivan noted that processing the animal, as Jefferson had requested, had been difficult, but that he had succeeded, that is, except for leaving the bones in the head. However, the skin of the head was whole and well-dressed. And even though the horns did not belong to this particular moose, perhaps the ones in the box may be fixed on in some way. Jefferson wrote back, seemingly pleased with Sullivan's work. He wrote, They were all in good condition, except that a good deal of the hair of the moose had fallen off. However, there still remained enough to give a good idea of the animal, and I am in hopes Monsieur de Buffon will be able to have him stuffed and placed on his legs in the king's cabinet. In defense of an opinion or to push your agenda or to defend your position on something or to press in on something you only kind of regret saying now that you've listened to your own words, how far are you willing to go to prove your right? You may not have the means or the moxie to ask for a moose carcass to be shipped across the ocean to prove your point, but every day in your pride, uh, you package up your opinions, your hot takes, your judgments of other people, and you ship them off in little bits of your selfish ambition via the delivery service that is your words. All of that to refute any opposition to what you've already said. We speak against anyone or anything that pushes back on us. It's our defense mechanism that kicks in almost automatically in our nature. We've got our own little empire, the growth and prosperity of which depend upon a positive image that might encourage not commerce, but maybe popularity and progress in our own lives. Out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouths speak. And James shows us in this passage in chapter 4 that indeed our mouths speak and they speak in the very tune of the selfish ambition of our hearts. Last week we saw that true faith seeks to eliminate selfish ambition. And here, James's logic flows right into the specific manifestation of that selfish ambition that is our words. The self-focus, the self-centeredness of our speech. In our words, selfish ambition so commonly and even so nonchalantly rears its ugly head. And as we saw earlier in James, this is so dangerously difficult to control. Our words are truly the overflow, the, the mirror, the barometer of our selfishly ambitious hearts. Our words sell us out all the time. Well, tonight in these two short verses, the connection uh, our speech has to our selfish ambition, uh, how destructive and selfishly ambitious we really can be, uh, and how our speech toward others must be submitted to God, uh, are clear in this text. Uh, we'll see in our text in three headings that those with true faith eliminate selfish speech and submit to God the ultimate judge. Those with true faith eliminate selfish speech and submit to God who is the ultimate judge. First, we see in the first part of verse 11 the destructiveness of selfish speech. The destructiveness of selfish speech. First, here in this text, we see the very ruinous effect our words can have on others. This is a truth that we saw earlier in chapter 3 in our look at the tongue. 
But here, James wants us to see the power of the tongue through the lens of selfish ambition. That is to say, in the first ten verses of chapter 4 that we looked at last week, we saw the prevalence of selfish ambition in our hearts. And now these two verses show us how our words further reveal they're a window into, they're a sign of that selfish ambition. In our need to submit ourselves to God that we saw last week, in our endeavor to humble ourselves before the Lord, verses 6-10, through 10, James is now saying our words must be included in that. In our need to submit ourselves to God, our words must be included in that endeavor. Here in the first part of verse 11, James gives us a very simple command. Do not, look at that there, verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Uh, the LSB has, do not slander one another, brothers. It's literally, the word there is to speak against. It's what the NASB has. It's kata, which means against, and laleo, which is to speak. Kata laleo, to speak against. It's this same word that we see three times in verse 11. The simple way that we are to submit our speech to God is to not speak against other people. It's to not speak evil against other people. It's to not slander other people. If you grew up in the United States, if you grew up in general, most of you have, uh, you've watched Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown is one of the most heartwarming and, for some of you, maybe special times in uh, the holiday season for your family. And one of the most quietly genius and... uh, really interesting uh, parts of Charlie Brown, if you watch it now as an adult, uh, is how the adults in Charlie Brown talk. Can you think of it? How did the adults sound in Charlie Brown? Wah, 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 wah. Oh, you're saying we have an assignment for homework. Okay, thank you. Uh, inevitably, the children in Charlie Brown answer back and kind of repeat what the adults are saying, but all the adults are saying is wah, 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 wah. And so besides the fact that the children, whether it's Charlie or Linus or Lucy or Sally, it repeats what the adult is saying, you can kind of tell what the adult is saying, at least in nature, by the tone of their voice. Sometimes the adults in Charlie Brown are boring. Sometimes the adults in Charlie Brown are a little bit upset. Sometimes the adults in Charlie Brown are correcting the children. This is the broad sense that James is giving us in this word, to speak against. What comes through is not the actual tone of our voice, but what James is capturing is like that. Wah-wah-wah of the adult in Charlie Brown. In that, James captures the self-focus, the self-centeredness of this kind of speech. It has a tone of constantly downward direction. This is destructive speech. This is corrosive speech. Speech that tears down, antagonizes attacks, speaks that at the heart serves one's selfish desires. And so you don't need to hear the exact words. You know the tone of this kind of speech when you speak against somebody. This is the horse-taming, ship-steering, forest-fire-setting piece of flesh that is our tongues, this powerful and destructive force unleashed on those around us in the church. And when the most important thing, the sole benefactor, 
the only valuable endeavor, the best thing in town is you, you will inevitably and invariably speak against others when they get in the way of your forward progress. You see, when you are in a mode of life, when you are thinking about yourself and about your own progress, your own comforts, your own desires, your own opinions, your speech will serve its master. And that's you and your selfish ambition. Selfish speech here in our passage flows from a heart that we saw last week that is firmly planted in worldly values and priorities. This is the very opposite of how God calls us to use our words, use our speech in the New Testament. Let's turn to a few passages and look at what God says about our words. Look at Ephesians 4, 29. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Flip over to Colossians. Colossians 3. Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer, how you ought to answer each person. And then back over to Romans, Romans 12, verse 14. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is the shape of your mouth in the New Testament with no corrupting talk coming out of it. Seasoned with salt and gracious blessing those even who persecute you. This is the kind of speech that God calls us to. And so James, when he says, do not speak against a brother, it fits right into the picture uh, that we have in the New Testament of our speech. Uh, now to be clear, in James, uh, he is not saying to, uh, to not ever have a judgment or an opinion about someone or something that they're doing or that we should never speak against or speak up against something we see in someone's life, there are helpful and beneficial, good and godly times to speak up. And to do that, consider Matthew 18. Jesus lays out the church's responsibility to render proper judgment on an unrepentant individual in a spirit of restoration. There's a lot of speaking and talking that happens in that process. Uh, turn to Galatians chapter 1, and I want you to see another one of these instances. Galatians 1. Galatians 1, verse 6. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is giving license to speak up against error in the church. And look at Galatians 6 and you see another instance. Galatians 6 uh, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
in these instances, there are good and right times to speak up and, in a sense, even speak against someone or what they are doing if they are in sin or in error. There are instances where we are not only supposed to apply judgment and discernment, but we use our words to confront these instances. But notice, as you think about these instances conceptually, notice the upward trajectory of these words, even in correction. Notice the Godward, selfless even, tone of these instances. And think about the goal of these instances. The goal is truly and purely for the good of that person and the glory of God. That that person would repent or turn away from error. And that God's truth and God Himself would be glorified in His church. And so it's in those instances that we speak up against someone or something if it's for their good and for God's glory. And so here in James... Turn back to James. It's not what we're talking about. James here tells us not to speak against one another. When he says that, he's talking about corrosive or destructive speech rooted in selfish ambition. Now, admittedly, there is broadness to this term here. It's just, again, literally to speak against in some kind of way. So I think it's helpful to consider what this speaking against can look like and what it might include. So I want to think about three different categories that we can think about this kind of selfish speech. The first category is the category of truthfulness. Truthfulness. You see, this kind of selfish speech can be one of two things. It can be Speaking falsely about somebody. The idea of defamation. Speaking untruth. Lies about somebody to tear them down. Uh, but this kind of selfish speech could also be speaking truth. Speaking what is true about somebody or what somebody did. Or a perception of the truth. Or maybe a, a slight part of the truth. And spreading that, perhaps gossip, uh, spreading what may be true, but in a way that is hurtful or something that is private or something that is unhelpful or inappropriate or perhaps exaggerating the effect of something. And so I think it's helpful to think about the truthfulness either way in this kind of selfish speech. Secondly, I think about the idea of the method in which this selfish speech is, is practiced. Uh, the method. You see, this could be pointing out someone's faults or their failures or their shortcomings. Or it could be taking what that person has accomplished, uh, their successes, and minimizing them, cutting them down, and, not, and making them feel bad about their successes or the virtue in their life, or even their ministry, or the way that God's blessing their life. In method, this could also be directly to this person. Uh, some people think that that's somehow better, that if you say it directly to that person, that it's at least honest uh, or more okay in some way. Not always the case. Or this kind of speech could also be indirectly to other people about somebody else, affecting all kinds of relationships and consciences and, and unity within God's church. So we think about the truthfulness aspect either way. We think about the different kinds of methods that could occur in this kind of selfish speech. And lastly, third, we can look at the motive behind this kind of selfish speech. This could be from a place of overt pride and criticism. This could be a scathing critique of somebody else's actions or somebody else's words or somebody else's character. This could be the, the kind of more obviously judgmental, others-reducing sort of place that our hearts could be. Or, this could be from a place of what at first at least seems like care 
in concern for someone. Maybe just a subtle curiosity for what's going on in someone else's life or uh, what her name is or what his name is or how he's really feeling about that. Or it could be even a concerned eye for what is going on in our ministry or our church, whether it's something that happened recently or a long time ago. When the imperfections, when the struggles, when the sins of God's people is fed to a heart that is morally superior, that has a puffed up assessment of one's own giftedness compared to at least that other person, when it's fed to someone who has a sense of thankless privilege in looking at the people around them, it can quickly devolve into this kind of judgment and selfish speech. You see how our speech, how our words uh, can be so dangerously rooted in our selfish ambition? It can come from uh, someone's past actions or their faults or weaknesses that you hear about or their prayer request or their lack of ability in something or their lack of willingness to do something. Uh, these things may be true or untrue. This can be direct or indirect, intentional or unintentional, malicious or seemingly innocent. The point is, you hear it, you let it simmer in your heart, and then you open your mouth and you speak downwardly against this other person or to other people about this other person. And that speaking against flows from a heart of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition that will take any and every chance to gain ground on other people. Grace on campus, in those moments of late night conversation, or in the dorm room with your tight little group that no one's supposed to tell anything to anybody outside, or with your best bud, all secrets are safe, right? You have a choice. When that person's quirk or shortcoming or struggle comes up in conversation, you have a choice. When you hear something juicy, in those moments, you have the choice to either pinball those words back around elsewhere, scoring more points for yourself at the expense of someone else. Or you can let that ball fall right between the flippers. And you might lose, at least in your own pride. But James says here, do just that. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Grace on campus, let's commit to stopping our selfish speech in its tracks and instead submit ourselves to God. Let's cease that selfish speech that speaks against others and instead commit it to God our own hearts of judgment, and then whatever that person may be struggling, knowing that the Spirit works and God grows and commitment to Jesus is all that matters. The rest irons itself out in eternity. Secondly, in this text, we see the self-exaltation of selfish speech. The self-exaltation of selfish speech. You see, before it gets better, it gets worse. Here in the rest of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12, we see the way that this kind of selfish speech seeks to exalt one's own self. Look at verse 11, the latter half of that. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You see, here we see what that speaking against others is. 
It's that it's not only contrary on a characteristic level, on a New Testament command kind of level, to the kind of speech that we are to have as Christians, it's also that the person with this kind of speech is exalting him or herself. You see, the person who speaks against other people doesn't just bring others down. This person, by speaking in this way, exalts him or herself by his or her own efforts. And this is, James says, why this destructive speech is so contrary to true and living faith. Here in these verses, I see three ways that in our selfish speech, we exalt ourselves when we speak against others. Out of this sort of selfish ambition that is so native to our hearts. The first way is this, that we exalt ourselves over others. And that's something that we've already discussed a little bit. That we exalt ourselves over those who we speak against. You see, alongside this idea of speaking against one another, James, quite naturally, in the second half of verse 11, exposes the judgment that also occurs in our hearts. Look again at the middle of verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. You see, in these instances, we place ourselves over and above others in our judgment as if to exercise some right to assess somebody else or some superiority that we have, some greater level of maturity that we see in ourselves over this other person. We judge others according to our standard, our expectations, our self-imposed authority when we talk like this. We exalt ourselves over others because we think we have the right to judge. Secondly, in this passage, we exalt ourselves in this way. Look at what we do when we speak against one another and judge one another. James says, we also, verse 11, speak evil against the law and judge the law. That is to say, when you place yourself over and above your brother in judgment, you also exalt yourself over and above the very law of God because you deem the law of God unnecessary to obey in this specific aspect. You think it's really nothing for you to slander and judge your brother. And so you disregard God's law. You exalt yourself over God's law. Look back at James 2.8 where we looked at the issue of partiality and favoritism. James 2 verse 8 if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You see, there in chapter 2, we looked at the fact that if you endeavor to keep all of God's law, if you are this really good person who shows up all the time on time, has a print copy of your Bible, but you fail in just one aspect, just one little thing, you are guilty of it all. And specifically in chapter 2, that if you keep the whole law, but you show partiality, you show favoritism to one person, the rich guy, over another person, the poor person, even in that what seems like subtle sin, it makes you as guilty before a perfectly holy God as would murder or adultery. All sin is sin, James says. As dark as the night, all sin equally as offensive and heinous and eternally punishable in the presence of perfect righteousness. And James's premise in chapter 2 is what Jewish tradition, along with the Bible, calls the, the royal law. Look at verse 8, again, of chapter 2. If you really fulfill 
the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. And that's from Leviticus 19.18. Turn to Leviticus 19 because we need to see something. Leviticus 19.18. This is God's law given to Moses to his people. And Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall what love your neighbor as yourself. And then the reason, for I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. But I want you to see something. Look at the verse, the two verses right before verse 18, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Reason again, for I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Verse 17, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You see, right up against the royal law is this command from God to not slander or stand up against your neighbor, and then to not hate your brother in your heart, which is then, in a sense, summed up in verse 18 in the royal law. Uh, That same heart of love for one's neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Turn back to James. Uh, In our text tonight, then, we see an echo of the principle we saw in James 2, which is an echo of God's law in Leviticus 19. That our speaking against others, like partiality, is subtle and underestimated, yet damning sin. These are the not-that-big-of-a-deal words that kind of break, actually definitely yes, shatter the entire window, so to speak, of God's law. That at one point we break God's law even as subtle as in our speech that throws shade on somebody else. We are guilty of all of God's law. Because what we do when we speak evil against others is that we are deciding for ourselves which part of God's law we want to obey and which part of God's law we are willing to discard in defense of our selfish ambition for the satisfaction of our own flesh in judging other people. And James says, if you do that, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You see, instead of being a doer of the word, someone who lives in humble submission to God, someone who receives God's will and seeks to obey it, you are, chapter 1 told us, deceiving yourself. You are saying, I am someone who follows Jesus, but in my words to other people or about other people, I choose to deny Him and that's okay. Well, James is saying, not only is that not okay, that's not how it works. Those with true faith seek to eliminate selfish speech because it's consistent obedience to God's law that matters for God's people. It's in worship to Him. It's what honors Him. It's what He requires of us. Not because that's righteousness that would mean anything other than it's the glory that He is due. When we speak selfishly, uh, you, we place ourselves over and above not only the person you speak evil against, you're placing yourself over God's law. And that's what James is pointing out. Thirdly, in this passage, we exalt ourselves. Uh, look at verse 12. In this way, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, when you speak against and judge others, you exalt yourself not only over the other person and not only over God's law and saying, eh, I guess I'll follow most of it. You exalt yourself over and above 
God Himself. God who is both lawgiver and judge. God the creator and sustainer of the universe. God whose loving kindness has been shown from generation to generation and to you and to the person that you speak against. God has shown mercy and grace and given peace to all of mankind through His Son Jesus. The God who reconciles you to Himself through the very death of His Son. God whose power raised Jesus from the dead and in Him we have victory over sin and death. You exalt yourself in your selfish speech over God. The very one who in verse 10 of this chapter said, if you humble yourself before Him, He will exalt you. And yet in our selfish speech, we decide it's better for me to exalt myself over this other person, this other image bearer, over God's law, because that doesn't really matter, and over God Himself. The very one who promises to exalt those who are humble. You see, when we exalt ourselves with our selfish speech over others and over God's law, we usurp God's power and position as lawgiver and judge over His people. This is the self-exaltation of our selfish speech and our judgment of others. Turn over, turn over to Romans 14 because I want you to see this same concept in a different context where Paul rebukes the Roman church over an issue. And we don't have time to get into the exact issue, but I think Romans 14 spells out uh, the same concept in a very helpful way. Romans 14, starting in verse 10. Paul writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 13, the first part, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And Paul goes on to instruct the Romans in how practically they can do that. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 14, and this is what James is saying to us. That we ought to consider that when we speak against others, we are exalting ourselves over others, over God's law, and over God Himself. And in Romans 14, we see instead, we ought to consider that is in fact, before the lawgiver and judge, God Himself, a level playing field. How many of you guys grew up playing Little League Baseball? I did. Technically, it was Park and Rec. I'm a San Francisco kid, so Little League is a little too much for my type. In Little League Baseball, one of the most viral and annoying things, viral in the internet sense, is when parent decides he saw the play better than the umpire. Right? You've seen those videos before. Fights, probably. Lots of yelling. Not a pretty sight. Well, what if not just a parent, but one of the kids, one of the nine-year-olds, decided, you know what, I, I think I'm done with this whole little league stardom thing. I'm going to, between innings, go behind the stands, do a little costume change, and come out in my umpire gear. I'm going to just decide, once and for all, all of these calls as yeah, one of the players, but one of the former players now. This is the silly kind of usurping and changing that we do on God and His authority and power over us as His people. You see, in our speech, that is what we are doing. We are deciding we should be judged instead of God, the lawgiver and judge for His own people. We cannot and should not, in our selfish ambition, 
think that we can, in our little league existence on this planet, throw on some umpire's uniform and start being rule book writer and umpire instead of God, who is lawgiver and judge, James tells us. We ought to instead see the level playing field, that is, mankind's sinful plight before God, and then the merciful redemption extended to us by an almighty God. And in God's world, God who is the perfect judge, a ball is a ball and a strike is a strike. And we ought to know that our place is a place uh, not of high-handed rebellion against Him, but of submission before Him. And James is saying specifically, in our speech. In our speech. And this is what we get to in verse 12. Our last heading, number three, is the solution to selfish speech. The solution to selfish speech. You see, lastly, in our text, and very importantly, we see the solution to this kind of selfish speech. The solution is found in the command in this text itself. Do not speak evil against one another. It's simply to not speak against one another. To not speak evil. It's plain and simple. But it's also found in this greater context of chapter 4. Think back to last week in verses 6-10. through uh, The commands uh, to humble yourself before God who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, verse 10, before the Lord and He will exalt you. It's plain and simple. If we are seeking to eliminate selfish ambition in our hearts, and we are humbly submitting ourselves to God, our selfish speech, our corrosive, destructive words will also follow suit. And I want to be clear here. uh, What the text is telling us isn't to turn all of our speech into just always positive words. That in some way, if we outweigh our bad words with our good words, that that's going to be good for God. Notice in this passage, the only command is a negative one. Do not do this. And so sometimes I think some of us could use a little bit of less, even just talking in general, and quieting our mouths before the Lord and before others when we see our own hearts going that direction. Sometimes it's just silence that helps. You see, our obedience to the Lord and putting away this kind of selfish speech is integral to our overall life submission to Him and and all of what we do and say. And specifically in these two verses, look where James takes us. Look again at this description of God in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, He who is able to save and to destroy. God is is the lawgiver and judge, as we have seen, the ultimate standard. And He is able to save and to destroy. You see, God who, in verse 6, opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, is He who is able to save and to destroy. He is gracious to save us from our sin, giving us the atoning sacrifice of His Son and the very path of repentance, uh, and righteousness. And He's also the, the one who is just to judge and to destroy unrepentant sinners for the rebellion against Him. Matthew 10.28 describes God as the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And He would be just. He would be right to do that because we are unworthy. But you see, our stopping our mouths, our ceasing our selfish speech on its own would be nothing other than some valiant attempt at saving ourselves from this inevitable and warranted judgment, the wrath of a holy God against deserving sinners, an eternity in fiery hell separated from God forever. Even if we could perfectly and completely stop speaking evil against one another. 
we would in our sinfulness, both by nature and by choice, find some other way and find multiple other ways to sin. Whether just one sin or many, all of mankind is guilty of sinning against a holy God. And yet there is grace found in what James says here. Why? Simply because God is the one who is able to save. You see, He has the power. He has the ability to save even the most wretched of sinners. Because He is God. And because He is love. And because He is merciful. And because He is gracious. God is able, He is powerful to save because He is God. God is not only able, the Scriptures tell us, He is also willing to save. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 tells us that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, the reason God doesn't just call it, the reason why God doesn't just end uh, the world and initiate the end of all things and call His people to Himself is because He is exercising patience. He is waiting on even some of you tonight that you should repent, give your life to Christ, and follow Him. You see, James 4, 11, and 12 shows us that God wants your words. But more importantly, He wants your heart. And from a heart that is fully His will flow words of grace seasoned with salt instead of this speech that speaks against one another. And so, GOC, may we be those who seek to eliminate this kind of selfish speech. Why? Because it would be a reflection of our heart's submission to Him. Would our prayer, even tonight, be that of 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 Psalm 19:14 that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you O Lord my rock and my redeemer let's pray